Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi and welcome to the eighth session of Market Book Reviews with myself, uh, Usama Al Azami, and Dr. Amar Al Shasi. This is a show where I interview Dr. Amar Al Shasi about books that he's been reading lately. And this week we're going to be having a look at Suhaira Siddiqui's book, Law and Politics Under the Abbasids, an intellectual portrait of Al Juwaini. I still hold it up to the, the camera to sort of. Yeah, please. So we have a standard format whereby we basically uh, sort of uh, Omar will present uh, on the book for 10 to 15 minutes um, I'll have a discussion with him for 15 to 30 minutes and then we open the floor for Q&A and inshallah if anyone has any questions you can write them in your um, sort of chat um, whether you're coming from Facebook, Twitter or um, YouTube I think Facebook and Twitter actually is where you would be able to write in the chat and inshallah we will get back to you in the last 15 to 20 minutes of this session so we welcome q and a uh, questions and we welcome feedback and please remember to uh, like follow or subscribe if you want to get regular notifications of this um sort of thing event so without further ado uh, Omar, would you like to take it away inshallah sure and i should point out uh, that we are looking to improve the sound quality of this uh, series of discussions and Usam and I investing some time into uh, exploring how that can be done because we do intend to make them available in the form of podcasts as well. Absolutely. But to get out, that out of the way, uh, Suhaira Siddiqui's book, uh, An Intellectual Portrait of al Duwaini, uh, Usam and I were discussing it uh, not many minutes ago and independently of each other, we came to describe this book using the same word which is serious. And that is not to say that any of the books serious we've discussed. Yes, yeah, serious scholarship. And not to say that any of the books we've discussed before do not also possess the quality of seriousness. Uh, but this, this one is really not bedtime reading. The amount of time uh, clearly the author has invested in the reading of uh, very technically demanding uh, works in genres like Usul uh, al Islamic legal theory, and in you know, particularly abstruse domains of Islamic theology, epistemology, and so on, uh, really shows in this book. Uh, and uh, as such, it's it's one that you you read and you're immediately impressed by the erudition on display, uh, and you have to really to truly uh, digest the content. You have to revisit it and you know as I did the second time I made thorough notes and so on it's very totally structured so I'll give you a brief uh, idea of what the book contains it breaks down into four sections uh, the first section uh, contains two chapters on the historical background during his context his his life his intellectual career and so on uh, the second section uh, explores epistemology for so focusing in particular on what Duwaini has to say about knowledge, especially in, in his theological writings. And the middle section of the book, which is, is by far the largest containing four chapters, explores his legal theory. So you have a chapter on Tawatur, uh, Ijma'a, uh, 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 and two kinds of Qiyas, so a chapter on Qiyas al-Ma'na, chapter on Qiyas al-Shaba, and the final two chapters in, explore his political thought, and in particular, his uh, extremely fascinating uh, book, Riyath uh, al-Umam, or for short, uh, the Riyathi, which is a term he himself uses. Um, now, what are the key features of, of Dr. Siddiqui's argument? 
she is making the point, and she's making a number of major, I think, contributions, of course, to the study of Duwaini, but, but also to Islamic intellectual history more broadly. She's arguing that Duwaini has an intellectual project, which is not a straightforward assertion. It's something that has to be demonstrated. And I think she demonstrates it very well. Uh, what is Duwaini's major intellectual project? It's all to do with two key themes, uh, certainty, uh, certainty in terms of knowledge in particular, and continuity. Continuity in terms of religious knowledge and, and religion and, 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 and social life and so on. And throughout the book, she explores the interplay, the, the sort of dialectical relationship between certainty and continuity in different domains of Duwaini's thought. So the you know, focusing on uh, Duwaini's uh, theology, his legal theory, and finally his politics. Uh, and she shows that in each domain of his thought, there is a slightly different relationship between these two. In some areas, in particular when discussing uh, Islamic theology and uh, the epistemology under, underlying this, uh, he clearly privileges a certainty over continuity. In some domains of the law, particularly when discussing Qiyas, he privileges uh, continuity over certainty. You cannot have certainty in, in all areas of Islamic law, something I'll kind of discuss in a bit. And uh, he's willing to sacrifice that for continuity. And then finally, all three of these, uh, well, the certainty continuity dialectic emerges very strongly and its relationship with community in the final two chapters uh, on Duwaini's politics, where he envisions, uh, you know, towards the end of the book, uh, what really happens in the absence of the imam, and then finally what happens in the event that uh, Mufti Mujtahids disappear, and then even jurists of any kind disappear, and knowledge of the Sharia gradually uh, dissipates, uh, and so on. So there are a lot of things going on in this book, and as we always say in every episode, we, we cannot do justice uh, to it. But the, the structure is extremely taut. And although, uh, you know, we, we, we should concede that some chapters, in, in particular those on epistemology, and I think uh, the chapters on PS in particular, are often very technically involved. And I think this is the nature of the discourse. It goes with the territory. You can't, you can't discuss Islamic legal theory without getting into these points of details. And moreover, uh, the author would not be able to make an argument about Duwaini's intellectual project, I think, without entering into these details. Uh, but nonetheless, she, she clearly signposts the, 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 key, the key argument, so you can always follow uh, at least the, the main points of the argument. Now, she's also making a broader methodological intervention, which is, uh, I think, a, a point that deserves attention among Islamists. You know, often we, we read fantastic monographs on, you know, the theology of a particular figure, or legal theory as a discipline in its history. She calls on, on the readers to take, uh, to, to read Duwaini across genres, to, to take seriously the, the challenge of interdisciplinarity in, in, in the kind of Islamic context. Duwaini had many hats. He wrote influentially in domains like legal theory and theology and so on. Uh, and yet he was a coherent thinker. And in order to make this, this point, she has to demonstrate these intellectual threads exist throughout the project. So he was one man with an intellectual project, and, and, and much of the book is interested in kind of excavating, excavating exactly what this is. Uh, so there is a great discussion of his, uh, you know, his biography and his context, and 
uh, Siddiqui does an excellent, or I should say Suheira, since, since we know her, both of us personally. Suheira does a wonderful job of tying these concerns, particularly the twin pillars of certainty and continuity, to Joanie's context. He is deeply shaped, and his intellectual uh, agenda very deeply bears the impress of his context. Uh, in the Nishapur, uh, where Joanie lived, uh, there was uh, you know, before his lifetime and into his lifetime, uh, constant vying, constant struggle and contestation, not only on the political but on the religious plane. There was political tension and a kind of working relationship, if you like, emerged between the Seljuk uh, sultans and the Abbasid caliphs of Baghdad, and at times it was a tense relationship. Uh, and there was also constant contestation, religiously speaking, along two axes, theologically in the region between the Ash'ara and the Mu'tazila, uh, and uh, legally between the Hanafis and the Shafis, and uh, in various ways, uh, Joanie's intellectual project is tied to these uh, contextual uh, concerns, but they, they shape the environment he grows up in, uh, and so on, in a variety of ways. Now. Uh, there is much to say, but where to, be, where to kind of begin? Um, I could say something about his biography or theology or legal theory. Any, anyway, and so on. Uh, I should. Like, we could sort of. Uh, we could go into the discussion, and in the course of the discussion, we can. Yes, sure. I, I think that would be a helpful, helpful way to do it. Yes. Perfect. But but I should say, I know. We all kind of know in the back of our minds, those of us who kind of know about Islamic legal theory and Islamic theology, that Joanie is a major influence. He's, he's usually overshadowed, which is a, an unfortunate position to be in, by his stellar pupil, Al-Ghazali, al-Islam, uh, so to speak. Uh, but I, I think one of the many important contributions the book makes is highlighting really the, the pervasive influence of Duaney. I mean, so not all of his arguments were positively received by posterity. So, for instance, uh, you know, drawing on the work of Wisnowski and and uh, and Griffel and others, Duaney is the first kind of Ash'ari Mutakellem, at least that had, was influential, to take seriously the challenge of Avicennan philosophy. And he already internalized the, the terminology of, you know, and this sort of thing. So he laid the groundwork for, you could say, classical Ash'arism, uh, a process that continues with Al-Ghazali and really reaches its apex with uh, Razi of engaging with, you know, productively and also negatively with Avicennan philosophy. And this is really what is, uh, Islamic theology ends up looking like for most of the subsequent period, you know, all the way down to modernity. Uh, I mean, his arguments aren't always positively received, so he makes a number of uh, innovative contributions, again, in line with this dialectic between uh, continuity and certainty in the domain of legal theory. When it comes uh, to, uh, for instance, to uh, the issue of Idma, uh, he rejects somewhat iconoclastically uh, the, the scriptural basis for Idma. So he says that the Scriptural arguments are either, in the case of the Qur'an, vague, uh, the indicants are too vague to interpret with any certainty, or in the case of Hadith, not sufficiently well transmitted, in order for uh, you know, the Qur'an and the Hadith corpus to serve as sufficient evidence of the authority of Ijma. Now, he ultimately accepts 
that Ijma'a is an authoritative source in law, but he does this via original means. And, uh, you know, many of his commentators and subsequent Ash'ari Shafi'i legal theorists are not very happy with, with how he does this, but it's a highly original argument. Um, and I think one of the main maneuvers uh, Suhaira makes in the book is uh, in terms of epistemology, epistemology really being, you know, the key linchpin, the key thing relating the disciplines of and tying the disciplines of theology and legal theory together. Uh, so she, and, and clearly again, the, the relationship between certainty and co continuity is all important here. How does Joani depart from his Asharite predecessors in particular? The most, or the one who exercised the most influence uh, on him, of course, being Al-Bakhilani, something she demonstrates at length. So she discusses Bakhilani at some length in the third chapter, particularly his, his legal theory, also his theology. Uh, Joani, and I, I, you can almost summarize uh, at least those sections of the book with, with these statements. For Joani, all knowledge, once it has been attained, possesses this quality of certainty. You can distinguish certain knowledge, you know, in terms of how it was acquired and, you know, in terms of the cognitive capacities of the reasoner who has reached these conclusions. But ultimately, all knowledge, once it is attained, is certain knowledge and it is one kind. She cites Duane as saying something along the lines of there is no knowledge more evident than another kind of knowledge. Ebien, min another ilm, presumably, something like this. And the key binary in al Juwaini, unlike other legal theorists, even later legal theorists and theologians, is not between knowledge that is uh, necessary, daruri, and knowledge that is acquired or speculative, nadari or kasbi. It is between knowledge that is uh, necessary, that is acquired, and knowledge that is necessary just on its own. So what does that mean? The knowledge yielded by uh, Mutawatir Hadith is not necessary, which is contrary to the arguments of many legal theorists, but it is necessary, uh, it is uh, kasbi, but necessary, if that makes sense. So all knowledge is certain once it is attained, and not only uh, is does it, once it is kind of acquired, it has the same quality in some sense, although you can distinguish, of course, different kinds of knowledge through methods of acquisition. Uh, another important point she makes is uh, Joani expands the realm of certainty. And he expands the realm of certainty in, so to a much greater degree than his Ashari predecessors. And how does he do this? One of the key means is by saying that uh, certain knowledge can be obtained not only through exhaustive reasoning, reason, another and so on, but also through uh, repetition and custom. Joani gives the example of a blacksmith, and Suheira gives the kind of more modern example of, 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 of an experienced driver. You know when you're learning to drive, which I did many years ago, completely forgotten to be honest with you. When you're learning to drive, and it's a wonderful example, uh, you know, you start out and you're kind of awkward and you're not sure how often to check in your mirror and you end up stalling the engine if you're driving uh, not an automatic uh, transmission, it's manual. Uh, or we could, uh, but, you know, over time you get more experienced and if you've been driving for 40 years, you hardly have to think about any of these things anymore. Even among those who may not have very sophisticated rational capacities, this amounts to certain knowledge. We can also think of the example, uh, I was you know, pondering over the book as, uh, this morning, 
of, a, of, of cook. <laughs> and we're both very experienced cooks, of course, at least not, well, uh, it is something that didn't do. Uh, but, you know, any experienced cook, um, not to perpetuate this gender stereotype, but I'm sure I'm others, and certainly my own, will never have to consult, you know, a recipe book, or will never have to measure out ingredients precisely, because through experience and uh, and, and, and uh, repetition in particular, these things become second nature. It's a kind of certain knowledge. Now, certain knowledge does not obtain across different fields. Uh, she discusses Aaron Zysor's distinction, very important in the domain of legal theory. Zysor argues it's key between formalists and materialists. Formalists being, uh, for example, the Ash'ari Shafi'i theoreticians who would say that uh, the sources and the kind of procedure of law has to be certain, but uh, you know, less something less than certainty uh, is perfectly fine in the actual furor of law. Unlike uh, materialists who insist that not only the sources and the procedure of uh, of law and lawmaking uh, require absolute certainty, but also the results yielded. Joani kind of complicates and problematizes this distinction between formalists and materialists. Because he extends the domain of certainty by virtue of you know this this idea of repetition and custom and so on, uh, he's able, in some sense at least, to say that legal conclusions can also be certain. And in what sense does he mean this? So uh, you know certainly the sources of law, whether mutawatir hadith and so on, can yield certainty. But even when it comes to domain do, domains like Qiyas and, and the even less certain form of Qiyas, Qiyas al-Shaba, which many jurists reject as probative. Uh, if one observes the correct procedures and reasons correctly, its results are subjectively at least certain, even though ontologically they might not possess certainty. And Joani is one of these legal theorists who believes that uh, you know, there is always one ontologically correct solution to a legal question, and if, you know, even if jurists do not obtain it. So, you know, subjectively, there is a kind of uh, can be certain knowledge, uh, even if ontologically that knowledge is not certain. And this interplay of, of, of uh, and my final point, yeah. Sure. Just as a, as a sort of, uh, it's probably useful for uh, a lot of viewers who won't be specialists in legal theory uh, so, in the Islamic tradition to maybe identify some of these, um, you know, uh, talking about the Mukhattiah or the Musawibah. So, Joani falls under the category of the Mukhattiah, from what it seems. Um, and the notion that, um, sorry, you were talking earlier about, uh, just a point, but I, I was just thinking that, oh, you, you should give an example of Qiyas al-Shabah because people will not know the difference okay. between Qiyas, for example. Fantastic. So, and this is uh, something I've looked at myself, so I, I, I learned a lot, especially I mean, from all of the book, but that section was especially fascinating. Qiyas al-Shabah is one kind of analogy, uh, unlike Qiyas al-Ma'na. Qiyas al-Shabah is based on some kind of resemblance between two cases, but it is an especially vague kind of resemblance. It is not, unlike Qiyas al-Ma'na, it is not based on a shared property, I want to say, uh, or a shared illa, a shared uh, kind of legal cause, but it is based on a certain shared feature. So the example Joani and Baqilani before him give is, and uh, Suhaira says, some theoreticians give this example actually to show how uh, shaky Qiyas al-Shaba is as a method of deriving law. 
uh, the question of slaves' ownership of property. So, uh, you know, different jurists have different opinions on whether slaves own property or not. And she says, you know, I'm not endorsing slavery. It's just an example jurists used to illustrate this point. Um, so some jurists will say uh, that slaves are more like property than, sorry, human beings. Others will say the opposite. They're more like human beings than they are like, than they are like property. And this impacts what position you take on this question. Now, somebody who's critical of the idea of Qiyas so, you know, if they're more like humans than property, then they could own property. If they're more like property than humans, they, they can't own property. Anyway, uh, different views on this, and I think there's a discussion of this point in, in Jack uh, Brown's book as well, uh, without appealing to these specific examples, as far as I remember. Now, uh, this is not a surefire way of deriving Islamic law. And remember, Joanne is always concerned with certainty and continuity. Uh, why is it not sure? Because you know, one can plausibly make either argument, and it's not really clear which which enjoys property uh, pre prevalence over the other. The Shafi view, by the way, is that uh, they're more like property than um, than human beings, and therefore cannot own own property. Uh, but anyway, uh, so this is not very certain. Now, what happens in domains of law, particularly Qiyas? Now, most Sunni jurists will affirm that Qiyas is an authoritative source of Islamic law, but you cannot really, because it is kind of, sometimes has a very tenuous nature with uh, relationship, sorry, with the textual sources or tangential relationship with the sexual textual sources, because you're using a kind of reasoning to extend cases not directly addressed by either the Quran or the Hadith corpus. Uh, Joani, in some sense, sacrifices the need for certainty to the need for continuity. What, what do I mean by this? Joani, like Asharite legal theorists, uh, uh, adopts uh, or defends what uh, Suhaira uh, calls scriptural universalism. Which is that you know scripture addresses all tech, all situations are in some sense addressed by scripture, and you need some means of extending the scripture in order to do so. I should say there is an important discussion in the chapters on epistemology, particularly the four, uh, second, uh, sorry, third chapter of the book uh, on uh, uh, moral objectivism, or as she argues is the more correct term, the, the Martezalites had a view which could be described as uh, moral realism versus the, uh, if you like, uh, divine command ethics, or, or she says, the, the scriptural universalism versus the moral universalism of Mahatizam anyway. Uh, and that has important implications for the relationship in Islamic legal theory terms between reason and revelation on a range of issues. Uh, so, yeah, a number of the discussions are technically demanding. That's true. <laughs> I'm just a little conscious of, so obviously this is a, a very wide ranging book. It's going to, you know, to be able to do justice to it, uh, we will need to have several sessions, several hours, but we also ought to give sort of, um, do a little bit of justice to our listeners, uh, sure. <laughs> giving them, uh, you know, uh, a format uh, that is somewhat more sort of like digestible. I think okay. the, uh, you know, you've, you've covered in a sense, you've given us an overview of the book. Um, and then you've kind of focused in on um, chapters which I've not yet had a chance to read. Um, I actually had a read of the introduction and I went straight to chapter nine after that. And then I've had a lot of teaching to do today, so yes. I can um, get on to chapter 10. Those are areas which are of my own sort of 
personal interest since uh, in the realm of politics. But um, but you're I think focusing on chapters three and four, which are on epistemology and and uh, yes, and uh, we've discussed uh, chapter six a bit as well on on uh, and the chapters on PS. But um, yes, and, so and I think I think one of the things that is worth highlighting here is this is a very wide ranging work. Um, I mean, the interdisciplinarity of Suhera's um, sort of endeavor is not just impressive, impressive. but also uh, is I mean. It is that most certainly, but it's also something which is, um, in a sense, a challenge to um, scholarship that we need to adopt this broad, wide-ranging approach in order to do justice yeah. to a polymath of this nature. And what I would like to encourage um, sort of listeners and viewers um, to also um, sort of uh, think about is uh, if you have any particular questions that address certain dimensions of this, whether it's in you know epistemology, whether it's in legal theory whether it's in uh, questions of um, sort of, uh, because she's also a very good historian of the period uh, and oh, yes. portraying sort of Absolutely. the context within which he's residing, the sorts of yes. personal relationships he would have had and the political sort of like... We, we should uh, probably address that a bit because then that's also yeah. a very interesting dimension of the book. I mean, in a sense, the, the political risks he himself faced as a prominent chefe in a con yes. context where the Hanafis were sort of... Um, yeah, you know, a, so a, in some uh, sense, I, threat, which is yes. that that intersectarian. Not it's not sectarian, but intramethab sort of like dynamic, which no longer really exists in our time. But you know, sociologically speaking, even if the Madhabon sects, literally, sociologically speaking, it's a kind of sectarianism. This was the yes. environment in which she lived. So, you know, the Ashari's, the sorry, the Shafis, and there's a close relationship in the spirit between the Ashari's and Shafis, and even kind of forms of uh, Sufism uh, as well. Um, you know, Shafi's intellectual project, she, she underlines this very clearly, is a product of this intensely competitive uh, context fraught with all kinds of sectarian rivalry, sectarian in the sense we just we just used. Yeah, and right. what happens, uh, you know... It would be interesting course, for you to define it briefly, because, I mean... Um, what, yeah, so I, one of the one well, of the I mean, we can illustrate it by talking about about the history. So what happens in Nishapur? So, um, you know, in the fourth century already, you have a major Asharite Shafi presence in Nishapur. Uh, the generation of uh, Al Ashari's student students kind of migrate there. She talks about uh, the big three plus one, if you like. So. Uh, the, the big three being the generation of Al-Ashari students, Ibn Furak, Al-Baqi Lani, and uh, also Al-Isfaraini. Uh, and in addition, the, the other one of the next generation, really, Abdul Qahir al-Baghdadi. These are, you know, Nishapuri, of course, they spend time in different places. Baqi Lani starts off in Basra uh, and then Baghdad. Actually, he dies in Baghdad, he doesn't go to Nishapur. Uh, but the Ashari's have already a strong presence in Nishapur, and this is where Joani's life has lived. I mean, he spends nearly three decades, the last three decades or so of his life, as the head of this Nidhamiya uh, Madrasa, established by the uh, vizier of the Saldukhs, Nidham uh, al-Mulk. Uh, you know, he, he, he's an academic in some sense, and we feel a sort of kinship with ulama uh, of this period. Uh, but his, in, in many ways, his, his academic life was more colorful than our own. So what happens? Um, the um, 
the Ghaznavids, the, the kind of dynasty ruling or the, the regime ruling prior to the Seljuks, uh, favors uh, the Hanafis, and this continues into the early Seljuk period. So uh, the Seljuks uh, are kind of contesting and fighting with the Ghaznavids. Eventually, they enter Nishapur. And in fact, the Shafi'i jurists of the city are instrumental in negotiating the surrender of the city to the Seljuks. Right. No dice, however, because the Seljuks continue to cultivate and to patronize the Hanafis early on. And in fact, uh, beginning in the year 440 of the Hijra, the Seljuk Sultan Tugrul Beg um, has the Ash'arites, among other sects, and Al Ash'ari himself denounced from the pulpits. And you know, Hanafi uh, preachers are appointed and, and so on. Uh, and in the year four, momentous year of 446, Al Jawaini, along with three other Ash'ari Shafi'i figures, including the famous uh, Al Qushayri, are in fact, uh, you could say, an arrest warrant goes out, <laughs> or like an Interpol blue notice or whatever it's red notice. Really? And Al Jawaini, fortunately, has already escaped the city uh, after a brief stay in uh, Baghdad. He spends uh, four years or so in, in the Hijaz, where he acquires his sobriquet, Imam Al Haramain, the Imam of the two sanctuaries. And she suggests, because there are conflicting accounts as always, that uh, he, the real reason he got away was not he was going to seek knowledge and his, then he was kind of this, this arrest decision was, was uh, issued. No, he, he, th he knew things were getting hot, so he kind of escaped before they got really bad. He's eventually invited back by Nidham al-Mulk, it seems, to head up the Nidhamiya in um, in uh, Nishapur, and that's where he spends the rest of his career. That's where he writes his most influential work. Uh, so here I tells us the chronology of many of his works is on Sun, but some of the key ones like Al-Burhan, his work, his major, his magnum opus when it comes to Usul al-Thaqa, um, is, uh, is a product of this later period. I should say she focuses uh, mainly on five texts, although she draws in many others as well. In uh, theology, she looks at his Irshad and his Shamil fi Usuluddin, which is incomplete, uh, but there are many commentaries she draws on, and, and abridgments and things like this. In his legal theory, she draws on Al Burhan and Al Talhis in particular, and she brings in other texts. And finally, on his politics. And depending on our own interests, you know, some people, I know, Usama, you're very into politics. His politics is very, very, very interesting and highly original. Uh, she uses Riyafi, aka Riyaf uh, yes, and deeply relevant. And I think in, in the conclusion, she kind of does reflect on, you know, we as modern Muslims today uh, should really kind of think about, you know, if not the details uh, necessarily, you know, they, the details of epistemology may not preoccupy us in quite the same way. But certainly that political dimension of this project, I think, is, is very, very, very relevant and, and interesting. Right. And I, I know, Usama, you're, you're kind of very interested in this dimension of joining. I am, but I don't want to necessarily hijack the discussion in, in that direction per se. Um, and I'm, as a, I'd like to remind uh, viewers, if anyone does have any particular questions with respect to Joani, um, or indeed comments, of course, uh, or if you want to sort of comment, um, if you've read the book and you, you have your thoughts, please feel free. Um, and yes, I think, I mean, with respect to, um, the politics side of things, if if I if you can indulge me for a moment, I mean, what's really uh, striking is this. You know, Patricia Corona describes uh, the book Al Riyathi or Riyath Al Umam and Al Tiyathi Al Zulam uh, as a kind of what to do in a state of emergency kind of thing. It's a 
um, and you know, not in a Schmittian sense, but in a in a sort of which is a bit sort of state centric and about what um, how the state can, in a sense, take control in in moments of of emergency or exception. But this is a different kind of exception, which is what if um, you know there is no um, properly constituted imama, and we just don't have the resources to bring that about anymore. And you know that really speaks to Muslims today. Yes. Um, you know, it's not. I'm not aware, and perhaps this is my own limited reading, and uh, and you know, perhaps Sahara discusses other people who've done similar things. But you know, as far as I know, it's almost exceptional as a project within Sunnism. Obviously, the the Shi'i sort of, and perhaps you know, he's even being inspired to a certain extent by um, imamis. Uh, obviously, the Fatimi are a different um, sort of yes. fish, but for for the imamis, um, by this point, they're in a similar kind of. Um, situation, uh, that... but with of course the difference, uh, you know, the MM is, uh, is a gone, the major occultation has occurred, and how it, how twelve hours understand the MM eight is of course somewhat distinct. Now, uh, if I could make this point, because it, it really sure. I think speaks to what you're saying. So you do have before Dwayne, although I think it's uh, the level of the discourse is kind of more sophisticated with him. You do have a discourse, and she alludes to Ahmed out of Ahmed's book on Fatura, Sharia, the idea of the fatigue of the Sharia. But uh, Dwayne's discussion of the Imamate, I, I would say is, uh, again, this may reflect my limited reading, but does seem to be somewhat unique. And, you know, the, the importance of these kinds of thought experiments to politics and political thinking, I think, is is understated. I mean, in the Western tradition, you have the idea of the state of nature uh, as, as a kind of way of explaining and exploring and justifying, you know, political, you know, the constitution of, of politics and of rule. I think, I mean, uh, they are very different traditions in the sense of course. that, you know, um, and, and Andrew March speaks about this in, in his sort of uh, recent fascinating book as well, um, The Caliphate of Man, where he basically says uh, that, you know, that there is this ever-present um, ummah, which is in a sense uh, exists prior to the constituting of a political entity. So uh, in a se and you know, he portrays it as an advantage over the, um, I, th I seem to have a bit of an echo, apologize. Yes. Just uh, mute and unmute myself. I, I should say, uh, this is very true. Yeah. And in this part of the book, uh, she does riff off, I think, a major kind of uh, argument made by Awaymer and linking epistemology to politics. Right. And how is uh, Joanie's political project, if you like, linked to his broader intellectual of her? It is the idea that, you know, if you cannot have, you know, again, this, this interplay of continuity and certainty, the community is key in politics, and the community is in some sense constituted by the presence of epistemically certain knowledge. So when you don't have an MM, what do you have? You have Sharia knowledge, even if you don't have jurists. You have, you know, in the worst case scenario, one of the worst case scenarios where, you know, all the muftis and even the, you know, semi-competent have passed away. Uh, you know, you at least have knowledge of basic things like the basic structure of prayer, even if the details and how to perform the prostration of forgetfulness is forgotten. Uh, yes, although I'm not a mathematician, so I, uh, so, so yeah, I mean, anyway. This is one of the things, uh, I mean, as I say, I had a very busy sort of uh, teaching day today. 
And uh, so I, I haven't gotten around to that particular chapter. But what I found interesting in chapter nine, which is kind of the obviously the preliminary discussion of the politics of emergency and hasn't gotten to the point where it's absolute desperation. There's not even knowledge that's accessible is that yes. I found that chapter really speak to our condition because it's not like chapter 10 where which is really the desperate situation. And he's in a sense asking what's left? What can we know without access to anything? Yes. And, and I should say, there reaches a point where these, uh, I think she calls them moral kulli or something like this, okay. uh, these kind of real fundamentals of the Sharia that we know by virtue of repetition, you know, things like prayer. So he says, you know, it may be that regular Muslims in this situation where, uh, you know, people have forgotten uh, or don't have access to jurists and professional, religious professionals, They'll kind of know the basics of prayer, but they may forget the details, certain details like how to perform this. Now, there reaches a point where, you know, he even envisions a situation, and this is, you know, the most radical case where knowledge of even these basic fundaments of the Sharia is lost. And he says, in this context, there is no more taklif. You are effectively uh, an Ahl al-Fatra, this people of the, you know, who, as if they live between the uh, arrival of prophets and they do not have access to knowledge. Now, because he's an Ash'ari, Unlike the Mu'tazila, uh, you know, so because this information about revelation and what to do does not reach them, they, they're not culpable. The Mu'tazila would say differently. And of course, the Maturidis as well, because Abu Hanifa and al sort of points out that, well, you still need to believe in God or Al Fiqh al Akbar. But, you know, what's interesting is that, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a fascinating um, sort of statement. and you have a sense of this in his student in the Faisal al-Tifriqa of al-Ghazali that um, you know people who don't have access to it they're Ahl al-Fatra so that's it's great to know the genealogy of that thought in a sense could be from the Ghiyathi in a sense yeah I mean elements of it will go even further back but Wissam I want to return to this point you were making about speaking to our situation because we do want to speak to our viewers and I know Suhaira wants to, to also speak to readers in a kind of deeply topical sense and so you're and saying I also want to say that you know i have every intention of actually reading this book because it it is so sort of like it relevant to our situation yeah but but yes sorry you were saying uh, yes so you said it speaks to our situ situation because you know you have this hadith about whoever dies without giving you know swearing allegiance to an imam dies the death of where does that leave us now it did remind me of one context another book i was reading quite recently so he talks about a situation where you have mufti mujtahid she uses the term because in legal theory in this period you, you can't be a mufti without being a mujtahid of course. as halak kind of demonstrates right, right. um so in the absence of an imam, where you cannot even find you know, one person who possesses any of the qualities of the imamate. And I should stress, Ghazali is not formalistic about the imamate. So yes, he discusses the criteria, the qualities a, and traits an ideal caliph should possess, like all the other you know, theologians before him. But again, he's quite hard-nosed about you know, what do we really want with imamate. This is something that um, distinguishes really some Sunni not all, but some, certainly some Sunni theologians from 12 Shia, a point made by Ibn Taymiyyah as well. You know, what, on the very basic level, what quality must an imam possess? You know, he's willing to forego, in the sake of continuity, right? Um, yeah. uh, he's willing to forego the, all of these requirements and knowledge and istihad and uh, lineage and all of these. 
for the sake of uh, preserving the continuity and integrity of the community, what one key quality is he, you know, not really willing to forsake if it's obtainable? And this is Shoka, uh, yes, and um, he refers to it with various terms, but also Kefaya, uh, so ability to kind of rule independently and actually possessing force. Right. Without this, there can be no rule. This is this is Ibn Taymiyyah's critique of the twelve uh, theory of imamate. Right. You know, if you do not have an imam who is actually ruling, this is not an imamate. Um, anyway, it's a critique that we even saw with uh, the text attributed to Abu Ali al-Jabbar. He makes the same point effectively. Now, right. the makhal, in the makhala. Now, um, I mean, this is even reflected when he discusses the Ahl al-Halwa al the people who elect the imam, and you know the. It's, he says, unlike many other theories, it's sufficient to have only one elector as long as he's right. kind of able to influence others. I mean, he appeals to the example of Omar, um, but again, it, it's a matter of practicality. And, you know, this is in some sense a reflection of what he really saw in his life, where the authority and power of the Abbasid Caliph did not extend, yes. well, certainly not outside of Baghdad, but not really outside of their palace walls in some periods. Right, right. And the Seljuks, the Sultans, were the real holders of, of Shoka and they had cafe and so on. I mean, interestingly, I, I recall Krona saying in uh, God's Rule, or the sort of British version is um, Medieval Islamic Political Thought at Edinburgh University Press 2004, that um, in a sense, uh, part of um, Joani's message seems to have been to uh, someone like Nizam al Mulk, oh, can you just basically take the caliphate altogether you know you don't need to <laughs> and and uh, so, he, she suggests oh, he doesn't really take him up on that one but uh, yeah now this is really interesting because i've thought about it a lot i should say before i make this remark sure. this book introduced <laughs> and again i, I was embarrassed uh, when i said there are many sources in the secondary literature i wasn't aware of that suhaira mentions in this book like many not just a small number I know Sam and I were saying before the session, <laughs> the book puts us both to same because Suhair is also a, a young scholar and is already deep into the writing of her second <laughs> second book. But anyway, uh, not not to detain you with, with this point, but one, one uh, book I think she could have benefited from and, and doesn't cite is um, Omid Safi's first book, The Politics of Knowledge in Pre-Modern Islam. He has a very interesting, among many other things he does, he has a very interesting discussion of the relationship between the Seljuks and the Abbasids. And one thing he, I remember like with standing with my hair on end effectively when I first read it in his book many years ago, you, the, 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 the early Seljuks, like Tugrul, that considered doing away with Abbasid Caliphate entirely. Hmm. Uh, and she does discuss the marriage of Tugrul Beg to yeah. the Caliph's daughter. And Omid Safi has an interesting discussion of this as well. But right. uh, so what do we see in Joani's lifetime? Um, you know, the, and, 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 and throughout his career and before his career, uh, shortly before his career, you know, the, the basics of communal life are in some sense being threatened, you know, the continuity of the caliphate, hmm. the, uh, you know, uh, the, the kind of integrity and consensus of the community is riven by this sort of sectarian tension right. uh, that, that really kind of, uh, info, you know, Joani is in some sense, he's a refugee, you know, he's a victim of this sectarianism, at least in, in, in some part of his life. Right. So these kind of concerns he really brings to bear, and they're very much entrenched in his intellectual project. Hmm. Uh, but you know, for Joani continuity is key, and he says, I, and Oymir Anton has also discussed you know, uh, Ghazali's political thought, and Ghazali has this famous passage where he talks about 
you know, live, uh, the, the, he, he really reflects on the absolute necessity of the caliphate. Yes? Yes, yes. Uh, the absolute necessity of the caliphate. Exactly. So you're living without a caliph is effectively like eating carrion, you know, uh, or something like this. I mean, I was just actually having a discussion with Andrew March about this yesterday, and I, I happened to have, like, my copy, my very yeah. poor copy of Al-Iqtisad fil Yes. So now the interesting reading that section yesterday. Yes. Yeah, so how does Joanne, I think Joanne, perhaps even more, more kind of startling Ghazali, he has, a, he knows what's at stake in this discussion. It's not a kind of on to intellect exercise. He knows what's at stake. Ghazali was also potentially threatened. Uh, you know, his oh yeah, of course. And they are, you know, they do overlap and he is a student after all. Yeah. Joanne says, what is the purpose of the emirate? What and I think it's a question worth reflecting on. You know, whatever branch of Islam or whatever view you hold on this, right, right. the purpose of the emirate, the, the 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 fundamental point about the emirate is, is to guarantee the flourishing of religion. Right. It just so happens that preserving religion and ensuring its continuity and flourishing and prosperity requires you know oversight in worldly matters. You know, a, a, a good caliph will, uh, you know, ensure the continuity and the flourishing of religion. To what he says, by kind of watching over these worldly, worldly things, he doesn't lose sight of the fundamental aim of the caliph. He exists and runs. Yes. In order for that yes. religion. Yes. Absolutely, and you know, you can even say that there's this kind of intertwining of religion politics you find even among this in the Sasanian, you know, political tradition as well. You know, the idea of religion and politics is twin, twin brothers. Right. Or, you know, think of the... And, and it's the, fascinating because I think that's literally quoted in, in the Ahiyya Ulum al-Din as well. So it's yes. something which is entirely incorporated. You know, yes. in the, a sultan, uh, din was sultan to aman or something along those lines. Yeah. You know, they are twins. But with Joaini, but, you know, so the emanate, it is, it is really an indispensable means, but it is ultimately a means to an end. So if you cannot have the emanate, you can still have, you know, religion and religious authority and the continuity of religion in some form. And this is what must be maintained at, at, the, at the fundamental level. And how do you maintain this? You know, either through if they're available, Mufti Mujtahids and their authority. That is extremely interesting, you know, thinking about, yeah. uh, you know, if we want to sit down and think about how does the jurisdiction of Islamic law function in, in non-Muslim societies. And, and the one book I wanted to mention in this context is uh, Catherine Miller's Guardians of Islam. So when, when Islam loses uh, political authority, even before the fall of Granada in 1492, uh, you know, in Spain, she has an excellent discussion of what happens to the Muslim communities in places like Aragon. Uh, effectively, the, the Fuqaha are the, the, the leaders of Muslim civil society. They both represent Muslim society to the non-Muslim rulers and yeah. Uh, they are kind of the, the leaders of, of Muslim society, the, the, the kind of, they organize the community. And I know in Suhaira's very exciting second book, which I'm really excited about and looking forward to, on a completely different context, so as if uh, uh, her range wasn't impressive enough, on uh, Islamic law in, <laughs> in British India, you know, from even before India's British, from the 17th century all the way into the into the 20th. And this is a context where, of course, you know, thinking of the, uh, the later 19th century in particular, Muslims are, you know, disempowered politically uh, and they are a minority, right? Politically and, and, uh, and, and numerically. Right. 
Uh, just a uh, recap. What did you say Catherine Miller's book was called? Uh, God, I think Guardians of Islam. We will post the uh, the book title and the, the comments. Uh, so that that's a really interesting. Now, uh, you know, where as Muslims in, in the UK or even in the United States or other minor, minority contexts, or even in in uh, um, you know. Because there are big Muslim communities, of course, in in British India before before partition, you know, yeah. uh, and indeed in context where, I mean, to a certain extent, much of the Muslim world um, or much of the Arab world in particular currently has rulers who do not really exemplify Islam, sometimes <laughs> maybe considered to sort of. Uh, I mean, there's, there's this big um, tension between Sisi and the Sheikh Al Azhar because Sisi wants to bring in certain things which. For the Sheikh Al Azhar is Khariq al Ijma or something along those lines. Yes. Yeah. Even but, uh, you know, there's this point that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so it's found statement. themselves in these circumstances. Obviously, you know, there have been certain uh, reactions which have been highly problematic to that reality. But Muslims are, in a sense, orphaned when it comes to the political sphere in general in the modern world. Yes. Yes. And uh, in particular, thinking about Islamic law, I mean, I was discussing this with my students last week and we'll discuss it throughout the semester. Uh, and Ruth Peter's book that we discussed in the previous week also has a brilliant article on this, uh, something like the place and we can all I'll also put the title of you like in the comments for the video. I mean, the fact that Islamic law and the great majority of its domains is not operative in the great majority of the Muslim majority world today. Uh, you know, outside of areas like family law, which has been subject to various kinds of reformulation and reform. And, you know, how do Muslims feel about this? Of course, you have a variety of perspectives. But let's say in, in late 19th century British India, early 20th century British India, that I know Sumaira will discuss in an exciting forthcoming book. Uh, I mean, think of early scholars of Dioband. You know, how do they advise their scholars to deal with the British court system outside uh, areas like family law, where Islamic law uh, does exercise a certain amount of influence? Should you go to a British judge to resolve your commercial disputes? Bearing in mind his verdict will be based on British common law, not at all Islamic law, and so on. So it's uh, these questions the book asks, you know, notwithstanding the fact that some of these uh, discussions, particularly epistemology and so on, are highly technically involved, and the book does speak to contemporary Muslims in a, in a variety of ways, especially when it discusses politics in a broad sense. But I mean, in a sense, it, it's even though it's uh, this technically involved text, uh, it's an opportunity. To... I'm so some chapters more than others, of course. Some chapters more than others. I mean, some chapters, I, you know, reading the introduction, um, I thought the style was, you know, beautifully written, very elegant, very accessible. Um, yes. I agree. And, uh, which, which is not something we can say for a lot of academic writing, of course. <laughs> and uh, and so, you know, in, in that sense, um, the intrepid lay reader should, I think, uh, try to engage and grapple with the sections of the work that they would... Um, well, I, I would say the entire book, actually, uh, because I, and, uh, when you're discussing legal theory, you, you cannot avoid this a certain amount of technicality. She always you know, flags the important, you know, the take-home points, as it were, and always kind of makes very clear how this particular intervention, this particular domain of doing is thought fits into this broad intellectual project. So, you know, you can always grasp at least the broad, you know, even if you have no experience of legal theory at all, I think you can always grasp the kind of main points he's trying to make, even the more technical areas of the argument. Of course, I mean, this is one of the advantages, arguably, of the way in which we write in the academy. Um, 
compared to, for example, uh, you know, a lot of works in uh, you know the classical tradition will assume a great deal of introductory preparatory knowledge before yes. you'd, be able, you'd be able to access it. Whereas, um, you know, Suhair would be writing for potentially, you know, non-Islamicists as well yes. who are interested in learning about that period of history. Absolutely, and, uh, and, and uh, she does set the scene very nicely in, in each discussion, whether it's right. legal theory, and she talks about the background between Asa'ara and Mu'tazila, or it's the history, or, you know, there's a summary of political thought effectively before joining, if you like, when she, before she discusses joining's politics. Right. I, I should uh, say, I mean, we have, unfortunately, uh, just a short period of time left, around eight minutes or so. Um, so, uh, you know, it's... Uh, a couple of uh, uh, someone's commented that they're really enjoying the discussion. Thank you very much, Ahmed Kali Khalifa. Um, more broadly, if anyone has any particular questions they want to ask, um, you know, please feel free to. Uh, or any comments, generally. Please. Or any uh, comments. Uh, I'd also like to highlight, you know, one thing which, um, you know, we've, we've both been remiss about, myself and Omar, which is that uh, there are some very brilliant uh, female scholars out there who we, you know, who. We have a huge amount to learn from, and I think um, people need to sort of spend a little more time. I'm speaking to myself uh, first and foremost, you know, recognizing and me. that and, <laughs> and reading those books. <laughs> so, um, so you know, thank you, Omar, again for sort of uh, taking the time to. Um, this is, of course, an opportunity for me to. Sort of yeah, I mean, I've learned a tremendous amount from this book. I mean, on a very basic level, you know, the the secondary sources I was totally unaware of, but right. Just, you know, even at first contact, you can see how many hundreds of hours the author spent just looking at texts of legal theory. You know, these are texts that, you know, and legal, texts in legal theory in particular, they're, they're often very naughty. You can't just read them and understand them. You, you have to sit down and untie the knots. And I, the amount of work that went into, into this book is, is you know, in, intimidating, quite frankly. But also, you know, hopefully inspiring for a lot of people. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes. And, and Jaslam is adding, uh, where was there a forthcoming? So he was just asking about the, the for, what you described as the forthcoming. I, I think yes, it's so, not necessarily forthcoming. It's something which is she's working on. Well, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's been uh, She's been writing it for some time, and the research obviously took years. She's a very thorough scholar. Right, right. You know, archives and all of this, and India and Britain, all kinds of Fantastic. research trips before COVID, of course. Uh, so it's a book on, if you like, Islamic law in South Asia. Right. You know, really beginning with, and I'm sure she talks about the book before. I, I don't know if there is a fixed right. title, or I'm not familiar with the provisional title. And if I find out, I can post it in the comments for the video on YouTube. But, you know, I, I didn't even know the relationship between the British and Islamic law goes back as far as this, the 17th century. Normally, it's kind of considered uh, an 18th century thing at the very earliest. But going, uh, going all the way from the 17th to the, the 20th century, Islamic law in South Asia, in particular, how, how the kind of British reformed this. So there's much discussion of Anglo-Mohammedan law now. Law in the Mughal context is still very poorly understood. You know, the spade work simply has not been done. And even in the, in the, in the British period, there is still a great deal to learn. So this will be an exciting book and it, it will, you know, it will be required reading for many decades. I've absolutely no doubt. And based on what I've read in this book, 
uh, it will it will impress us all a great deal. And I, I'm really excited about about that book. And and you know, based on my excitement about this book. <laughs> right, right. Um, I apologize. Um, obviously, I'm doing this from home in COVID circumstances, and so um, oh. I, I do have like a, a toddler in the house who um, might make some noise. Um, but it adds uh, much color to my life, alhamdulillah. So, um, <laughs> and so uh, I, I think we've discussed, you know, a, a broad swath, a swath of uh, the sort of the coverage of the book. It does have a, a good number of chapters. Um, those chapters are very sort of um, uh, readable, uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, in some cases quite um, pithy uh, and quite a lot to sort of digest. Um, I wonder um, if you can sort of uh, maybe circle back to, so we've in a sense spoken about a certain degree of social and political history. We've, we've discussed um, epistemology and uh, legal theory. We've discussed briefly um, his and his politics of exceptional circumstances as well. Are there any aspects of the book that you think, um, any other aspects that you think are particularly sort of worth covering in the last two, three minutes of our session? <laughs> so where to start? She does touch on his legacy and, and the reception of Duaini, right. particularly when exploring uh, legal theory. So she talks about how subsequent Ash'ari Shafri's the Jumhur tradition of legal theory how they felt about Duane's interventions in areas like Tawatur, in areas like uh, Ijma, how they felt about this. And often, thinking particularly of Ijma, they, they weren't happy with his point that actually the scriptural evidences for this are quite weak and insufficient and adequate in various ways. So, but at the same time, what's interesting is, you know, obviously there's that's going against Imam al-Shafi'i, who himself, the story of how he comes up with Ijma is an interesting one because he's in, invoking the, you know, Sabil al-Mu'minin, the ayah talk about ghayra sabil al-Mu'minin and wallihi ma tawalla wa nuslihi jahannam. I mean, it, it is a bit of a tenuous <laughs> sort of, it, it is a bit yes. of a, uh, and, and the thing is that's also recognized by people like, or arguably, I mean, I don't know the exact context in which Ahmed talks about man da'li jma'a faqad kadab, you know, which uh, in the early period sometimes meant فقد uh, so to speak, and uh, according to yeah, the, so th this is discussed in the in the book. Right, right, right. I so say. I mean, so he's kind of drawing on a different, uh, you know, tradition to contest the Shafi position. Uh, it would seem he's not what? this. I mean, one other aspect he kind of alludes to in the introduction, if I recall correctly, is that you know you have a standard understanding in the secondary literature now that the schools kind of form. Um, and they are more or less accepted by the time you get to Al Juwaini that will all operate within these schools. And, uh, yes, but Shafi's and Hanafis don't like each other much, even no, in this no, context. No, 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 not, not that um, you know, there's concord. But, but, but the, the, that's that what's called the. Um, yeah. yeah. That you have to kind of follow uh, uh, a madhab in a sense. And what would be interesting to me is. Um, you know, Juwaini kind of bucks the trend a little on some of these messages at the end of the day, right? I mean, uh, he, he's, you're, you're saying in his usul, usul al-fiqh at least, he's contesting the ijma'. Um, as far as I recall, in his ilm um, al-kalam uh, as well, like he's not aligning himself with Ash'ari on everything, right? You know, there are yeah, so lots of contestation. So she, these she are still about... very independent scholars working within traditions, yes. as it were. Absolutely. So she does talk about the... Um, 
impress of uh, some particular kinds of Martizali uh, legal theory on his own. Of course, the Martizali had the most sophisticated legal theory in the, the third and fourth centuries. Think of the Martemid uh, of uh, Abu uh, Hussein al-Basri specifically. Not to be confused with uh, Abi Abdullah al-Basri. Anyway. Uh, yes, now, I should say he doesn't reject the authority of Ijma'a Qiyas, he right. accepts the probativeness of these usul, but through a different means. Right. Through arguments for the authority, things that are more persuasive and less kind of tenuous. Um, and I should say as well, something she acknowledges, she ju just doesn't have the space to discuss in the book, but has clearly thought about and reflected on a lot. Juwaini is important not just as a legal theorist, but as a faqih. His nihayat is voluminous. Nihayat al-matlab fi dirayat al-method, and nihayat al sort is, you know, Ghazali abridges it multiple times. And in some sense, it is a kind of, and you could say Shafi's kitab al-Umma is systematic, but it is a truly systematic, you know, fully coherent, systematized vision of Shafi law that is also deeply influential. Uh, and she, I know that she wanted to spend some time exploring how exactly the certainty continuity dialectic plays out in his furor, but there wasn't the space, space in which yes. to do it. It's a longish book already, as it were. Yes, I mean, and, and very, very rich. Right, right. We, we've come to the end of our hour. Um, Jan Islam is just uh, noting that uh, Chokani also objects to the use of that verse to justify the Ijma'ah. Yes, but Shokani is a uh, is a real iconic, you know, a serious iconoclast who, right. you know, doesn't doesn't pull his punches. And Ahmed Semsi has discussed him a lot in his book that we we saw earlier in the series. But uh, Joani is kind of he does make departures from the Ashari Shafi'i legal theory and theological traditions. Right. But ultimately, in some sense, it's to produce new justifications for other positions, among other, you know, interventions. Right, right. Well, Jazakum Omar, um, as I've mentioned, uh, you know, this is the sort of book um, in terms of its richness and complexity that would require a good deal, <laughs> a lot longer to be able to do justice to. Yes. So, um, but uh, again, we, I guess we, we first thank Suhaira for writing a book like this. Absolutely. Um, which has really enriched, um, I think, the secondary literature and presented in many respects a challenge, uh, an interdisciplinary challenge to uh, all of us uh, as yes. we approach these sorts of subjects. And uh, I'd like to thank you as well for uh, taking the time to read this book twice, as, as I recall. And uh, it, was a, it was a real pleasure. And I, I got a lot more of that out of it, you know, it, with new readings, as, as, as is always the case. And, uh, and I'd finally like to thank um, all the viewers who've tuned in. There have been many of you and Jazakumullah Khayyan for uh, sticking with us and, and inshallah benefiting from this um, session. And uh, we will see you in a week's time. Uh, what's the best? And next week we will be discussing, since we promised to atone for our sins of neglecting female authors, <laughs> another fantastic book. Uh, this time I shall hold it up to the screen by the fantastic Fozia Bora, writing history in the medieval Islamic world, the value of chronicles is archives, really focusing on, on the Fatimids and how the Fatimids were remembered through various archival and historiographical practices. So I, I very much look forward to that discussion. 
Chaucer is, of course, a, a very um, dear friend and colleague of both of us, uh, including, uh, um, you know, as, her, as a value council member for BRACE, the British Association for Islamic Studies. And so we look forward to uh, having that, inshallah, next week. Um, and uh, finally, uh, Ahmed Kali Khalifa very kindly saying thank you. Stumbled upon this podcast a few days ago and thoroughly enjoyed the episodes. Jazakumullah khairan for taking the time. And, uh, you know, I, I hope this is something which is of value for both the field, but also for sort of the average Muslim who might be interested in these sorts of areas. Um, uh, I think there's, there's a, a great deal to be had from uh, looking at the work that's being produced in the academy right now, even though, yes. you know, produced within a certain sort of so social context that might be somewhat alien to the average uh, Muslim lay sort of reader. But I think, yes. uh, you know, they, uh, there can be sort of ways in which um, uh, Muslims can really enrich their um, horizons by exploring um, the literature that's coming. Yes, out. and my final point would be uh, I'd like to hold up Suhaira and her scholarship and her book as exemplars of how this can be done. Yes, yes. And thank you again, Omar, for, for this. And I hope we can all learn from Suhaira and inshallah next week, Fozia, um, really how to sort of refine our scholarship. Jazakum um, khairan. And see you all next week, bismillah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.